This morning's reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 1 through to 20, that can be found on the Church Bible, page 982. That's the book of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 1 through to 20. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God. He is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. When the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them, they are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make man unclean. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. This is the word of the God. Well, uh, the passage that we've come to in our look through Matthew's Gospel is this one in chapter 15, and it quite fortuitously sets us up to realise why Good Friday and Easter Sunday are necessary. It's a a not so well-known part of the Gospels, but it is a very important part, and through it Jesus clears up Um, a number of issues which were live then and in a different way are live today. The first issue is that of authority, verses 3 to 6. Does scripture or religious tradition have the casting vote in our decision making? Which do we look to for our primary authority? Now the Jews were to honour their father and mother as we are. Now, in those days when there was no old age pension, or in days when uh, uh, that's getting increasingly eroded by inflation, since um, state pensions are not 
um, linked to average earnings. And other final salary schemes, schemes are being closed to new entrants and money purchase schemes uh, by less and less. There is the issue of how to look after your aged parents. It's a live one. I reckon Mrs. May lost, did poorly in her general election because she tried to, she messed up explaining that she was going to introduce a cap on how much you would pay for nursing care. And she mangled it so badly, I thought, you've just lost loads and loads of votes. And yet what she was proposing was an improvement for 70% of the country. Anyway, in the time-honoured way, the way in which people probably in most of the world today um, ensure they'll be looked after in their old age is by having lots of kids. Yep, I thought about that. <laughs> but uh, what if they're able to but don't want to? Now, in Jesus' day... The Pharisees knew that they had to honour the commandment, honour your parents. But they didn't want to part with their cash. So they invented this tradition of korban. That's what it's, uh, what's being spoken of here. In other words, if you ringed fenced your money so that you set it aside for God, not that you actually gave it to God, but you set it aside because you might well give it to God in the future, then unfortunately it's not available for your dear old parents. And that is a rather neat bit of casuistry. You know, you say to the folks, I'd like to help, but I'm not able to let you have what I have earmarked for God. And of course, when the old folks die, you conveniently unring fence it and you can spend it on what you like. And that's what they did. And that is kind of honouring, if you like, trying to honour the letter of the law, but actually get round it in a pretty devious way. But what does Jesus say? He says that they are nullifying the law. Their man-made traditions have got round the law. Their tradition has usurped the authority of Scripture. And Jesus affirms that it should, in fact, be the other way round, that Scripture has the primary authority. All tradition is under Scripture and is evaluated by Scripture. So Scripture trumps tradition. A second issue is that of worship, verses 7 to 9. Is it our lives or our lips? Is it what is said or sung? Or is it what is in the heart's desire expressed in our lives? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? It's our lives, not our lips. It's our relationship with God and our desire to love and serve him rather than any kind of religious formula, whether spoken or sung, or any religious ritual. They're all externals. That kind of heartless religion, he says, clearly throughout the Old Testament, quite literally gets up his nose. He doesn't like the smell of it. 
So, concerning authority, it is scripture over tradition. In the issue of worship, it is our lives and not our lips. Uh, for much of well, for four days of this week, I've been on a selection conference, selecting people or not for ordination in the Church of England. On my way back, I called in to see a very old friend of mine, and he happened to have um, one of his daughters who was popping home for the evening. She'd recently just moved about 40 miles away and uh, got a place through Christian Flatshare. But she's only been there a couple of weeks and she already finds it pretty unbearable and is looking for somewhere else. You see, the, the, the other people there, whilst they're all professing Christians and who go to a particular church, in fact, some of them work for it, and, uh, but they're all sleeping together. And it's just, you know, the hypocrisy... Just, she can't cope with that. So, but that is dreadful to think, really. It's incredibly bad witness. It's in no way compatible with the Christian faith. And then the third issue that, we're, that we have here concerns, um, concerning what we're looking at today is morality. Is it inward or is it outward? The original question from the Pharisees was, verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. And Jesus gives them an answer, verse 11. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean, but what comes out of his mouth that is what makes him unclean. And he clearly upsets the Pharisees. The Pharisees regarded nature and the spirit as so related that impurity could pass from one to the other. So a, a bad man's body was impure um, and to touch it would bring uncleanliness to another man's soul. Can you believe so they devised complicated rituals to avoid defilement. One of the Pharisees' sayings was, he who lightly esteems hand-washing will perish from the face of the earth. Even the rival schools of the Pharisees, the stricter and the more liberal, Hillel and Shammai, who disagreed over much, were united on this, and they have there are 18 different rules which were intended to purify the Jews from defiling themselves by contact with Gentiles. Now, not surprisingly, they were pretty upset with what Jesus had said. He had effectively rubbished such practices. And in verse 17, Jesus explains what he means by this to his disciples. They've not quite got it yet. You see, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, literally into the latrine, or we might say the loo, or stronger. Translations into English often sanitise a word that is much more blunt in the Bible. But he goes on, verse 18, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, we might say from the subconscious. 
and these make a man unclean or defiled. And there's, then there's a list of evil things, a number of manifestations of a corrupt heart. Six are here, and they are all plural in the original. They're not always in the way they get translated. There are evil thoughts. There are murders. There are adulteries. There are sexual immoralities. There are thefts. There are false testimonies, slanders or blasphemies, denying what is of God. And what Jesus is saying is this, that what defiles or makes a person unclean in the eyes of God is what comes out, not what goes in. What goes in is food, which goes to the stomach, not to the heart, and then goes to the loo. What goes out from a sinful heart or a subconscious mind is expressed in what we say and do. And what Jesus is saying is that the capacity which people have for a personal friendship with God is ruined by not getting the, uh, is, is ruined not by getting the religious rituals wrong, but by personal sin that comes from deep within us, but which is capable of a rather ugly expression. Now, before we press on, this, these words of Jesus present us with an opportunity to look at what we might call biblical anthropology, in other words, the Christian view of human nature. The nature-nurture debate through, uh, is, um, is a very common one. Do we do what we do because of our genes or do we do it because of our environment and the way we've been brought up? Well, most people reach some kind of consensus in that it's a bit of both. What do Christians, though, have to add to this? Well, this little parable of Jesus sheds light on both the cause and effect of all that goes wrong in life, a phrase the Bible sums up in one word, sin. So what's the cause of sin? Well, it is from deep within. And what is the effect of sin? Well, it's defilement. It is ruined relationship with God, which spreads to spoilt relationships with others. The origin is in the heart, and the outcome is a moral mess, tragically. Now, the Pharisees were observed obsessed, rather, with external ritual purification. What Jesus is saying is what is essential is the inward morality. They worried about their hands. Jesus says we should be much more worried about our hearts. And so we have the human nature and its need for a change of heart. And scripture teaches that the very first human beings who were created in the image of God, they had that dignity. But they transferred their allegiance from him to themselves. And the divine image in them was marred. They became degraded. Things went wrong with their relationship with God and as a consequence with others. It is deep-rooted And we all inherit it. John Stott wrote once, 
Within the soul of every man's heart there lies buried the ugly seeds of every conceivable sin. Imagine you're out hill walking, for example, and um, you know, you're getting a bit hot and you're getting a bit parched and uh, you'd love a drink and you come across the stream and it is beautifully clear, it's bubblingly fresh and you start to drink. And then somebody who's with you with a big pair of size 11 boots steps into the stream. And what happens? The whole thing gets muddied up. The silt gets stirred. The sheep's droppings come off the boot. And what you are going to drink is now foul. It has all been messed up completely. And so it is with human beings. Things may look okay... But dig deep, and even not so deep, and you'll disturb the dirt. Rage, spite, greed, lust, jealousy, malice, cruelty, revenge. And if we have any moral sensitivity, then we are disgusted about what could come into our own minds. And theologians call that original sin. It's what we inherit from the original human beings, Adam and Eve, who rebelled against God. And that rebellion is the world that we are born into. It's so pervasive that they even talk about us being totally depraved. Now that doesn't mean that we are incapable of doing anything that is good Romans 2.14 assumes that we do when it says of Gentiles when they do by nature things required by the law. But it does mean that even the good we, we do can be tainted or twisted by sin. We may do the right thing but for the wrong motive for example. You see, people often take up causes that actually make them feel good, that actually make them feel a bit self-righteous about themselves. But the cause is often not of great moral significance at all. But the buzz they get from it enables their consciences to be quietened about serious moral failures in their life. Jim Packer gives his description of sin, an anti-rational intelligence that works within us, using fantasies, illusions, unrealities of all sorts, wishful thinking, rationalisations, distractions and 101 other anaesthetics for the mind. You see, sin is out to do two things. It's out to remove barriers to self-destroying ungodliness. It's out to lure us into more and more wrongdoing so that we destroy ourselves. These are the constraints of culture, of family, and of conscience. 
And those things hold us back from our worst possible excesses. But if he can diminish those restraints, we will get into a bigger mess. We see that happening in the public domain today. Sin is also out to set up barriers to repentance. You see, there is a sorrow, Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians, that does not lead to repentance. And there is a godly sorrow which does. The worldly sorrow that he speaks about, we just feel bad about something. We might regret some of the consequences, but we don't recognise it as an offence against God, and so we have no motivation to change our heart. We listen to other voices which tell us that things are okay. And that too is the devil's method. It is deceit. Sinful decisions present themselves to us whitewashed. Or as the right thing to do. Or assuring us that we may freely indulge and all will be well. And deceit has an array of techniques. C.S. Lewis, in his um, Screwtape books, has a very good insight into the way in which the devil operates. You see, it exploits our temperamental strengths and weaknesses. So if we are a strong leader, we could act more like a bully. And yet, if we have rather delicate health, then we might be tempted to think that since we're not able to do very much physically, we're of not much value. Another way deceit works is to get our minds into a complete tangle and we work out all sorts of rationalisations. I've once heard of somebody trying to convince me that they're their fraud in which they had uh, deprived their company of £80,000 was justifiable because of the way in which that company had treated them. Deceit can also paralyse the mind. How many people get swept into an affair or drawn into a fight? Desire or rage drown out reason and conscience. And after the event, you hear them saying, I wasn't thinking. Deceit can use hardening so that our conscience is effectively so dulled that it is silenced. Sinning in a particular area for the first time can be hard. There is a battle. But once you've done it two, three, four, forty-four, fifty-four, hundred and four times, your conscience is silenced. It has become hardened. And the stage is set for further decline into sin. I don't know where you work, but if there's a staff canteen or restaurant still... um, And sometimes you keep your eyes open. And most illustrations that I give are ones which I have seen. 
even though they may well be 40 years ago. But you'll notice a young man and a female colleague next to each other in a queue, and naturally they'll end up sitting down together at the same table. And gradually over time, you notice, because your kind of break is the same time as theirs, that it becomes more and more frequent. And you think to yourself, considering that, they're married, that they are married to different people, you wonder how wise this is. Of course, if you were to raise it with either of them, they would, of course, deny it. And you might have pricked their conscience. But unless they were to act on that conscience being pricked, you won't be surprised to find out six or eight months later that their marriages have broken up and there is an affair going on. No wonder Jesus reckons that the inward motivation takes precedence over the outward appearance when it comes to morality. And why every human being needs a change of heart, a change which Jesus effectively says in Matthew 12, 33, is possible. He says, make a tree good and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognised by its fruit. Change the nature of the tree and the fruit will change. Change the human heart and a person's life will change. That is the Old Testament hope that in the New Testament becomes a possibility when the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, comes into a person's life and the effect is the fruit of the Spirit in their life, producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, godliness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Jesus was saying the same thing when he spoke of being the vine and being the branches. Often when people feel they've made a mess of things, they're tempted to engage in cosmetic surgery. Do the wrong a little less. Do a bit of charity work to somehow compensate the balance. Maybe go to church a bit more. When what is needed is radical surgery, a complete change of heart, a new desire for God, and a start of a life with God inside us and us cooperating with him to serve and please him for his glory. With him in us, we are able to get a grip of ourselves. Jesus spoke of us denying and affirming, denying our old nature and affirming our new nature. Paul speaks of putting off the old nature and putting on the new nature. With Jesus in control, we are able to get a grip of ourselves. So given the corruption of our heart, nothing other than a new one will do. So the second lesson from this passage is to realise that God is on the lookout for a new heart in us. That's God's primary concern, the state of your heart and mine. He knows our thoughts, even though they may not get as far as actions and expressions. He even asserts that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. And yet, the Pharisees were absolute sticklers for the law. So how can that be? 
but they were sticklers for the outward, not the inward. We've seen how, with this tradition of Corban, they got round the duty to honour their father and their mother. And they did the same with the command to love their neighbour by limiting that to the Jews. We see that in the behaviour of the Levite in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We may look good doing something that looks okay, but God knows the motivation of our hearts. He may even know it before we realise it ourselves, so deceitful can the human heart be. Today's people's guiding principle is so often, if it feels good, do it, or I'm going to do what's in my best interests. I'm sure, well, I can remember hearing of this sort of conversation. It was between two women, both professing Christians. The older one, a mother of three, had had an affair with a married Christian man. Of course, what does she say to the younger woman? who is shocked and saddened as they drink their coffee in Starbucks. Well, she says, well, we've not really been happy for that for a long time. And the children have taken it well. They're they're absolutely fine. I'd call that deluded rationalising. The first is no excuse, and the second is self-delusion of the worst kind. We should allow God to frequently examine our hearts and he does it via the study of scripture and prayer. And lastly, this little passage teaches us that people matter more than things. If you add these uh, six sins uh, listed here to another six which are in the, the Mark conversion, you get 12. 11 of those 12 sins are against the person Our society has plenty of laws relating to property. But it's usually that sins against people, which are not regarded as crimes, are far more damaging. So someone can look a pillar of society, no crimes against them, but in God's eyes they can look awful. In Jesus' day, he broke the man-made laws of the Pharisees by healing on the Sabbath. He broke the religious taboos of the Pharisees by mixing with social outcasts and Gentiles. Why? Because in his heart, he wanted to do good to people and to save them. So the things that we take away at the beginning of what is often called Holy Week as we lead up towards the events of Good Friday and of Easter Sunday, is that we take the opportunity to examine our own hearts, to change them if we've not, and to get a grip of things if we have. And with Christ within, the resurrected spirit of Christ, it's possible to change and to conform into his likeness and to live for his glory. Let us pray. Let us reflect as we end on this uh, thought about the human heart. 
to um, some words from the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, and get their answers to some questions. Can we ignore God? Psalm 44, God knows the secrets of the heart. How do we fare when we engage in self-examination with him? Psalm 26, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. What heart attitude is God looking for? Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Who can gain access to God? Psalm 24, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. What should be our guide? Psalm 119, turn my heart towards your statutes and not towards selfish gain. Do we have to go it alone? Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. And the outcome, Psalm 97, light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Amen.